0: Welcome to Savage Minds. I'm your host, Julian Vigo. Today's guest is Tim Newbold, a Senior Research Fellow in the Department of Genetics, Evolution, and Environment at University College London. His research group is interested in how and why biodiversity is changing around the world and what this means for human societies. He and his team address these questions using a mix of advanced data analysis and computer modeling and applying their models to make predictions about the future of biodiversity. I welcome Tim Newbold to Savage Minds. It's an honor to have you here because as you are well aware, the controversies politically around the world around climate change seem to be growing in in argumentation pro and against. I'm interested to see how your research might lend more clarity to this issue, especially for people who say that climate change has always happened and that this is nothing worse or greater than has historically been seen. Could you briefly review some of the climate change arguments before we delve into your research?
1: Sure. So, you know, I'm not a climate scientist myself, um, but, you know, there is a Great consensus among climate scientists that, uh, that the world is warming and that human actions are, are driving climate changes far more rapid than we've seen in the past thousands of years. Um, and, you know, from my own research, we're already seeing the signal of that climate change on, on biodiversity. So, you know, for, for example, some work that we did last year showed that rapid declines in, in bumblebee biodiversity across North America and Europe can now very clearly be attributed to the effects of, of climate change over the past 100 years.
0: There are many people who make the argument, I'm sure you've seen this on Twitter, that there were no records kept before quite recent times on this. How do we know that climate change scientists have it right then?
1: Yeah, so we have all sorts of um, evidence going back over tens of thousands of years from lake sediment cores, um, looking at pollen records, that allow us to to reconstruct what the climate was, um, going back over tens of thousands of years. You've
0: been working on the issue of biodiversity, and species extinctions. I read a report the other day, this was on major media, not one of yours, that stated that basically one in five species today is in danger of being extinct within the next 20 years. Is this correct? And what does the science say about this?
1: Yeah, so we know a lot about certain species, about um, birds and mammals, reptiles and amphibians. Um, And, and, you know, people have been looking at their status, their, their populations, um I, over you know decades now um and you know it's very very clear that a great many of those um of uh, those uh, species are at a very high risk um of extinction um and, and so considered by the international union of uh, uh, for the conservation of nature to be you know at risk of extinction within the next decades yeah it becomes a little bit harder when we when we look at things like um Insects, which are which are much less studied, but you know, much more um, monitoring is going on on now, and and you know for the groups that we are that we are looking at for insects, you know it seems as if the if the pattern is very much the same that a high fraction, you know somewhere around a fifth or a quarter of species are threatened with extinction.
0: Well, that means something for the planet beyond simply that we can no longer look at this rare beetle or mammal. What does this mean for our ecosystem when species start disappearing from the earth?
1: Yeah, so, um, you know, we we, we know that, um, you know, a great many um, functions of, of natural ecosystems depend on those, those animals and, and plants within the Within the ecosystem, um, so you know things like nutrient cycling, pollination, seed dispersal, um, and, and a lot of my you know research is, is looking at those local losses of, of biodiversity, um, and um, you know we know that that you know as we as we lose species from ecosystems, then um, those, those functions begin to be to be lost.
0: Well, in your paper, A Biodiversity Target Based on Species Extinctions, you and your colleagues analyze the loss of biodiversity and propose a single target comparable to the 2% climate target, which you maintain could help galvanize biodiversity policy. You write, nationally determined contributions for biodiversity could provide an action-based context for better protection and management of biological resources and provide governments with a framework within which they could act to achieve global biodiversity targets, including to reduce extinction rates. You state also governments also need to monitor the effects of these nationally determined contributions for biodiversity in real time and use models that project into the future to evaluate compliance with policy implementation and fine-tune their policy responses. What would that look like? Are there any governments engaging in your suggestions?
1: So there are a lot of, um, you know, there's a lot of action underway um, to, at the the scale of national governments to, to try and arrest biodiversity losses you know we've had you know, various targets over the uh, over the past decades to, to to try and stop losses of biodiversity um, but what we don't yet have is a sort of um, coordinated um, agreement of, of, of national commitments in the same way as we have for, for climate change and um, you know such as countries have been discussing this week um, and so what really what we were proposing here was to you know, to greatly simplify um, the number of, of targets um, and to come up with a target that would be easy to communicate to the public similar to the you know as you say similar to the two degree target for climate change. Um, and we settled on on extinctions as something that's um, relatively easy to measure. Uh, and also has a lot of traction with the public. You know, people are very aware, you know, when there are news stories about species getting into you know.
0: But there are many, including some of the climate change deniers, who would argue that this is correlation and not causation. What is some evidence that shows the correlation between our use of, let's say, factories that pollute the environment, our use of Airplanes, the production of cement, some of which are the greatest contributors to the pollution of the planet. In old speak, <laughs> what would be some examples to show the causation effect and not that it's correlation?
1: So we have, you know, um, countless papers over the over the past um, several decades. You know that that you know very clearly show a fingerprint of habitat loss. Of pollution, of climate change, in declines of biodiversity, um, you know that's it, it, the evidence is 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 bad.
0: And are there any groups beyond government? I'm thinking of groups like I've met many people working in Devon who work on permaculture, satellite cities that try to move away from urban dwelling working on local community gardens even individual gardens where people can reduce their carbon footprint how would this look like in the scheme of let's say governments don't kick into place what can individuals do to help biodiversity
1: yeah so there you know there are all sorts of, of things that that we can do you know one thing that emerges very clearly from from my research and and that of others um, you know is that climate change is going to become probably the major problem for biodiversity within the next um 30 years and so you know one of the most important things that we can do to um to to preserve biodiversity is to try and meet those climate targets um to, to reduce the amount of climate change but we also know that habitat loss um particularly for agriculture is also you know, has been the the major driver of biodiversity loss and will still be a very important driver um, in the coming years. Um, And there are lots of things that that we can do um, to reduce that that pressure on habitats, you know, from sourcing um, food from uh, places where where, um, biodiversity is a greater consideration, where farming is done in a way that's sensitive to biodiversity. And also, as you say, you know, very local actions like, um, uh, you know, um, having gardens that, that um, are um, beneficial for biodiversity. You know, planting um, flowers um, rather than, um, you know, having concrete, for example.
0: Are there initiatives by urban planners? architects to perhaps incorporate some of these ideas within their models, because it seems that the problems can be mitigated by government policy, but we also know that governments are very slow to engage in this, as as you've just mentioned. What would urban, well, let's speak about practical ways that we live today that might have to be rethought. What are some ideas you have in terms of how we live in the world and where we might need to head and move away from currently.
1: Yes, absolutely. Um, so you know, there's a lot that that private companies can can do to um, make their businesses better for biodiversity. You know, as you say, one one thing that's um, what one um, development that's very welcome uh, is that a lot more um, new buildings now will have green roofs, for example, um, or living walls, which can really benefit urban biodiversity. At a bigger scale, um, you know, there's also, there are also now moves to um, have zero deforestation supply chains. So making sure that, you know, when companies source materials, they're not contributing to deforestation, particularly of, of tropical forests that are so rich in biodiversity. You know, so these are really important moves towards um, better protecting biodiversity.
0: And I would say choosing elements such as bamboo, perhaps, to build over wood, where bamboo can be replenished much more quickly. No?
1: Yes, yes. I mean, you know, I don't think um, we have, you know, all of the information to understand, you know, the biodiversity impacts of different decisions. You know, it can be very complex weighing up biodiversity impacts of different products, you know, especially when there are very complex supply chains involved. Um, You know, but certainly. Something that's as fast-growing as bamboo is is likely to be much better than, um, say, tropical hardwoods and tropical forests.
0: Your paper on tropical and Mediterranean biodiversity speaks to how land use and climate change are interrelated. Can you explain to our listeners what that means, how we use land today, what it contributes to climate change, and how we might change this?
1: Yes, yeah, so for, for biodiversity, um, habitat loss and, and climate change are creating this sort of perfect storm. You know, they're not, th- these aren't problems that are happening in, in isolation. Um, and there are sort of two key problems really that, that, that lead to this, um, to, this, to this, you know, adding up of the effects of, of habitat loss and climate change. Yeah, so, so one's been known about for quite some time, now, and and that's that, you know, if we we chop down habitats, we make it harder for um, animals and plants to move to keep up with climate change. So we know that with climate change, um, animals and plants need to move from sort of tropical areas towards higher latitudes, um, and in mountainous areas, they have to move up mountain slopes. And that's much harder to do if we've chopped down the habitats um, and and um, and then the animals and plants have to move through agricultural landscapes instead of through natural habitats. And the other um, the other thing that's going on and, and that's um, something that we're focusing on much more now that, that has been less studied in the past is that when we um, chop down habitats to to make agriculture or to make um, cities, we actually change the The climatic conditions in those areas. So agricultural areas and cities are hotter and drier than the natural habitats that they replace. And so this adds on top of the effects of climate change. And so makes it even harder for for species to survive.
0: In this paper, you talk about the potential positive effects of modeling. Uh, What are some of these potential Positive effects of the models that you use because you speak of the various models that assume differences in biodiversity among land uses, which are, as you write, constant across the whole terrestrial surface of the world. Although some models have considered tropical, temperate, and taxonomic differences, what are the potential uses of these models and their deficits?
1: Yeah, so, um, your yeah, biodiversity models importantly, allow us to take that big picture to see what's happening across the world. And they allow us to make predictions about what will happen into the future. In the same way that we use climate models to predict what will happen to, to, the, to the global climate. Um, and so, you know, the big problem really that we, were, that we were tackling with this study is that we tend to take what we know about the, the places that we've studied the best um, and this is often places like North America and Western Europe. Um, and we use that to, to try and understand what might happen everywhere else. And what was very clear from, from this particular study that we did is that actually the, the biodiversity of, of tropical areas, those areas that we've studied much less, you know, it, the biodiversity there appears to be much more sensitive to the effects of both habitat loss and climate change. Um, And so this means that we're probably um, underestimating how much biodiversity will be lost as a result of future habitat loss and climate change.
0: And are these rather precise measures or are we still battling older models that refuse to understand the differences of land use by species, as you mentioned in this paper, birds or the smaller populations that necessitate a change in model? For instance, can you give some examples where one model works better than another with a certain species target?
1: So it's a really rapidly moving field. Um, Biodiversity models haven't been around as long as as climate models. Climate models have been developed since the 1950s. The first things that we would call a biodiversity model appeared in around the 1990s. Um, But this is really rapidly moving now because we know that we've we've got to tackle the biodiversity um, biodiversity losses very urgently. Um, so we have, there's been lots of um, studies that have developed models for single species um, and those can be really quite um, sophisticated, particularly for those species that that we know a lot about, that we have a lot of data for. The sort of work that I do is is trying to look at lots of species together um, and there so far our models have been much simpler and um, you know f- for example as i said before taking what we know about um f- what we know from very well studied areas like like western europe and north america um, and then using that to try and understand what's happening everywhere else so you know one of the one of the key things really that we need to to understand is is what's happening to tropical areas because they've been much less studied um, over the past years Um, but it there's going to be a lot of habitat loss in the tropics to meet future food demands the effects of climate change are likely to be felt most profoundly in the tropics Um, and so we really need to understand what's happening in those systems.
0: In your paper you discuss how tropical species tend to have a slower pace of life and they also have smaller numbers of offspring While you write, they mature more slowly than other species. So you do look at birds and you say that they have been shown to confer greater sensitivity to human land use. What we've been shown in major media, the average person who doesn't read your papers, for instance, gets the news of mcdonald's being responsible for having so many hectares of brazil's rainforest mowed down to make room for their cows okay so this is the meta narrative that gets out into popular culture that the rainforests are being removed to make place for cows for mcdonald's hamburgers what is the media not getting right when they make these types of representations what are they missing
1: well so there are a number of features of, of tropical areas that we think make them particularly that, that make their biodiversity particularly sensitive to the effects of, of habitat loss and climate change. Um, and, and as you say, you know one of the things is, is the is the animals and plants that live there. They tend to be more specialized. They tend to be um, slower breeding. so so you know they produce less offspring. The other thing is that in places like North America and Europe, we've got a very long history of um, of using the land for agriculture, and so the the biodiversity that's found there has had a, a long time to um, you know adapt to, to humans being within the landscape. We, we've lost a lot of the the biodiversity that that would have been there that was sort of most sensitive to to our use of the land. And in, in tropical areas, we haven't been using the land for as long. And so we still got all those sorts of sensitive animal and plant species. And then the, the, the final thing is that the um, animals and plants in tropical areas are already close to the limits of the sort of climatic um, conditions that they can, they can cope with. Um, tropical systems are already very hot. And so, so um, animals and plants are at the upper limits of the sorts of temperatures that they, can, that they can deal with. And so, you know, all of these things come together to mean that those the biodiversity in tropical areas is much more sensitive when we start messing around with the climate, when we start messing around with, uh, with habitats um, to, to do agriculture.
0: And when you say agriculture, you're talking about massive amounts of like large agricultural industries. You're not talking about allotments.
1: Yes, all things have an impact, of course, but, but um industrialized, very intensive agriculture tends to have a much bigger effect on, on biodiversity. And of course, takes up much more, a much larger area of land than, you know, small scale agriculture.
0: And there are many critics, especially those making arguments for vegetarianism, that a lot of agricultural farming is done in the name of feeding animals. Is there an argument to be made or that you've seen in your past research that might indicate that the use of meat as a nutritive substance might be best replaced?
1: Yeah, so in general, producing Meat takes up much more land than producing vegetable products, you know, just because of the inefficiencies in in the way that energy moves up food chains, basically. But that's it, you know, in general. So, you know, some systems that produce vegetables can be very impactful on on biodiversity and, and some systems that produce meat can have a smaller impact. But in general, certainly producing meat requires more land. And so, you know, shifts in diets from more meat intensive diets towards um, more vegetarian diets certainly would reduce the pressure on habitats um, and, and so on biodiversity.
0: And you've just mentioned about the way that biodiversity has been impacted in tropical areas. But you've also done a paper recently with colleagues on biodiversity in Mediterranean biomes, are there similarities between the tropical and Mediterranean biomes that you have studied?
1: Yes. So um, along with tropical areas, the biodiversity of Mediterranean areas also appeared to be very sensitive to the effects of both habitat loss and climate change. And some of the reasons we think are similar. So Mediterranean animals and plants are very specialized. They are living near to the limits of the temperatures with which they can cope. Uh, Other things are quite different. So Mediterranean areas do have a very long history, uh, probably the longest history um, of humans using the land for agriculture. So yes, there are are some similarities and also some differences.
0: Well, I don't know if in the UK, you study this as a child in the US and we do, when uh, maybe around seventh, eighth grade, we study, The older farming methods from the medieval period where land was laid fallow for a year or two to rejuvenate, are these older methods perhaps necessary to reinvestigate for present use? Because as you know, instead of laying land fallow today, it's quite often the case that there are products put back into the land so that it can keep producing. And as you probably know as well, people from either the permaculture movement to other named more natural farming movements, argue against the uses of chemicals and the need to leave lands to rest?
1: Yeah, so, you know, one thing that's very clear is that, you know, while in general, when we convert land to agriculture, we lose biodiversity, the impacts are very variable. And, And that depends, you know, as you say, on um, on the way that we that we manage the land and so you know there certainly are um, better ways of managing land and, and less good ways of managing land um, and, and you know certainly chemical inputs often have um, negative impacts on on biodiversity and um, for example you know impacts of pesticides on insects. One thing that um, that that emerges from from my research as well is the you know, the importance of having, bits of natural habitat within farmed landscapes. So if we have some patches of natural habitat around, then um, those farmed landscapes tend to support much more biodiversity.
0: And there's also other methods of farming. When I was living in Great Britain, I did a lot of work in the areas of Cornwall and Devon, where you have a major research trust, the Agroforestry Research Trust, which examines forest gardening. And there have been many people who have studied forest gardening in southern India, in the states of Karnataka, Kerala. You have quite a bit of these kinds of what in the West people might say is strange, but more traditional farming practices that take place within the forest itself.
1: Yes, that's right. So, um, yes, agroforestry areas. So, you know, as you say, this, this, um, you know, again, it's an example of where agriculture is interspersed with natural trees or little patches of natural habitat, um, you know, can support very high levels of biodiversity. But, you know, what, one of the things, though, that we, that we wrangle with is, is um, finding the right balance between, you um, very intensive farming, which takes up a smaller area and so allows us to leave more um, big areas of natural habitat for biodiversity. Or on the other hand, um, farming at at low intensity, so doing agroforestry, organic farming or whatever, but of course, you know, because because the yields are lower, some you know, in general, that takes up a, a larger amount of, of land, and and we still, you know, there's been there's been some work looking at this, you know, where where the the right balance lies, um, but there's still a lot of work to be done to you know understand this this trade off.
0: You're listening to Savage Minds, and we hope you're enjoying the show. Please consider subscribing. We don't accept any money from corporate or commercial sponsors, and we depend upon listeners and readers just like you. Now, back to our show. As you know, since the 1990s, there's been a boost in organic shopping. You have in the U.S. Whole Foods, which many Americans call Whole Paycheck because it's made an elite product out of organic farming, well, not just organic farming, but out of uh, organic as an idea, and then skip to organic farming and naturally packaged items, which end up replicating many of the fast food looking items that are already on the shelves. So this becomes both an elite practice where only the wealthiest can have access to that. And it seems that capitalism isn't giving us the responses to what is an urgent subject in terms of the loss of biodiversity today. What would be a good step forward for companies that are looking to actually make an impact on carbon emissions or on biodiversity without resorting to these kinds of high street brands that only the very wealthy can afford?
1: Yeah, so I think think you're right that yeah, in order really to tackle biodiversity loss, we've got to find solutions that are affordable for, for everybody and I, you know, I'm not sure, not being an agronomist, you know, I'm not, I'm not sure exactly what the solutions there are, um, but yeah, you know, certainly we've got to find things that are socially equitable as, as well as beneficial for biodiversity.
0: It's very interesting the way that you look at the land use change in terms of agriculture, because if I've understood what you just said a moment ago, that the choices are often between more intense farming using smaller spaces versus the inverse, which would be maybe less intensive but more land needed. Is there a third solution?
1: So, yes. Um, So, so this is there is a sort of general. Uh, pattern you know in the way that we've done agriculture in the past you know either we've farmed very intensively and got very high yields which means we need a small amount of land or we've or we've farmed less intensively and and got lower yields but there's a lot of interest in you know the so-called sustainable intensification where we might be able to achieve high yields but do so in a way that's that's um, not as damaging to biodiversity and of course you know the the other thing is that, you know, agriculture actually often needs biodiversity, you know, we need crop pollinators, we need predators that keep pest populations in check. Um, and so, you know, actually, it's it's not necessarily as simple as, um, you know, either biodiversity or high yields.
0: Indeed, I think that some of the myths out there about how we can make an impact on the detrimental changes to the Earth that tend to be either or, or the idea is it's already been figured out. However, looking at let's say when wildflowers were reseeded, and there's been there have been various initiatives within the UK to even fund wildflow- flowers seeds so that people can go out and just throw them about. And when these experiments were conducted we saw that in response to more wildflowers being seminated, that there was a positive response from the bee population, for instance. And you've written quite a bit on the bee population. And I'm wondering if you could review that for our listeners as to what has happened to the bees over the past three decades.
1: Yes. Yeah, so, um, you know, certainly habitat loss has has been a major pressure on on bees, um, and, and you know we've we've done some some work on that, and, and many others have, um, and and you know there is a lot that, that that we can do in you know in terms of the way that we manage the land, and you know as you say it, there has tended to be this this sort of sense that it's either crop yields or or biodiversity, but you know so so far we've been able to farm and. know we've lost a lot of biodiversity but but you know things have still been um you know we've still been able to pollinate crops but you know we're sort of pushing at the pushing at ecological limits you know if we lose enough biodiversity then we may start to lose these these critical um functions that natural systems perform for us you know like like pollination of crops Um, And, you know, on on the bees, the the work that we did last year was looking also at the effects of climate change. Um, And, and, you know, as I said earlier, there's now a very clear signal of the effects of climate change on on bumblebees. Um, And so, you know, this is adding on top of um, the effects of habitat loss. And so we're likely to see much more rapid declines um, as as climate change accelerates. Um, And again, you know, then we're starting to to risk losing those those critical functions like, like pollination on which our agriculture depends.
0: And what has contributed to the loss of the bee population? Because as you well know, there are many arguments around this alone, from the use of neonics to farming. What does the science say to this day on the disappearance of bumblebee populations?
1: So it seems to be a whole mix of factors. So, um, you know, certainly people have seen an effect of of pesticides on wild bee populations. We've shown um, this clear effect of of climate change. Um, And of course, you know, habitat loss itself um, has contributed to those declines. And you know, all of these things are adding together. Um, and of course, you know, most of these things are going to, to increase um, in their extent. There's going to be more uh, land required for agriculture to feed the growing population and the you know, population with shifting diets. There is of course going to be accelerating climate change. Um, and so you know, all of these things are likely to um, continue to increase in their intensity um, in future. Which is likely to have um, very negative effects on bumblebees and, and of course, you know, um, other insects as well.
0: What about the illnesses that bee colonies have been facing, because they are plagued also by illness?
1: Yes, I mean that—that's not my own um, area of, of research, but, but yes, of course, um, uh, particularly you know, managed bee colonies, honeybee colonies um, are, you know, also. Um, being affected by, by disease. And of course, you know, many of these things are linked as well. Um, you know, changes in climate can, can change incidence of diseases, um, for example.
0: Let's talk about your paper on zoonotic host diversity increases in human dominated ecosystems. This came out last fall. Were you and your colleagues right? Land use change, for example, the conversion of natural habitats to agricultural or urban ecosystems is widely recognized to influence the risk and emergence of zoonotic disease in humans. However, whether such changes in risk are underpinned by predictable ecological changes remains unclear. Now, obviously, when I read this paper, I was thinking of the pandemic, because as you know, the current pandemic, the coronavirus disease, is caused by SARS two, has been classified as a zoonotic disease. Was this in mind while you were all researching and finalising your project?
1: So, um, when we when we started this work, um, and, and yeah, this is work that was that was led by a, a graduate student colleague um, of ours uh, at UCL, and, and when when he started that work you know there was no inkling even of of coronavirus on the on the horizon um so it was um yeah i guess uh quite quite you know quite surprising then when you know suddenly coronavirus erupted and um and you know the paper came out around that around that time um and of course you know the parallels were um were very clear um you know, I guess that, you know, really what, you know, we were interested in this work, you know, we're seeing these very rapid changes in biodiversity, not, not all species lose out. Some things do very well with um, human impacts, climate change, habitat loss. And so we're really quite, you know, quite interested in, you know, what these changes mean for us as humans. You know, one thing that's clear is that we're, um you know losing the sort of very specialized animals and plants and we're gaining the sort of the cosmopolitan um tolerant animals and plants and you know what what we wanted to to find out with this work is is whether that means that that ecological systems are becoming filled with more things that carry human diseases and and, you know that Indeed, is what we show um, that you know that um, that that species that carry human diseases, zoonotic hosts, um, become much more abundant in um, in areas that we've disturbed for agriculture um, and in in cities.
0: Last year, I interviewed a researcher in the US who's done work on this and investigated some theses of students in China who investigated caves near Wuhan to find that there was a theory, and it's still a valid theory floating out there, that the disturbance of, let's say, caves where bats live, even for the sake of sampling them, might be something scientists need to reconsider. Because the thesis was that by disturbing habitat, happily living far away from the city centers and humans with a zoonotic disease might be best left alone and not touched even for the sake of scientific investigation. Now this was a theory it has not yet been proven but is there something to be said for the way in which humans are interrupting natural habitats and put ourselves at risk of zoonotic disease?
1: Yes I mean certainly as we you know as as we're clearing natural habitats we're you know coming into contact with animals with animals, and, uh, with, with animals that, that may carry human diseases um, certainly.
0: What is the best way forward for those of us who aren't in government or don't own massive factories to maybe make policy changes even within the private sector What are things that the average person can do to make an impact? on supporting biodiversity?
1: So, um, you know, I, I'd say one of the key things really, apart it, so there, there are sort of very local actions that we can take in, in the way that we manage our own land, our gardens and, and green spaces. Um, but, you know, more generally as consumers, you know, a key thing is to be aware of um, of the where ingredients are coming that, that make our products and you know there are now moves afoot to to, to make it much easier for people to understand the, the likely biodiversity impacts of, of products that we that we buy you know more and more companies are talking about zero deforestation supply chains governments talking about zero deforestation supply chains um, and so you know making sure that we that we buy products that are produced in a sustainable manner um, is is really one of the the key things we could do. And of course, you know, contributing as much as we can to reducing climate change, because that is going to be the major pressure on biodiversity within the next few decades. And so anything that we can do to reduce levels of climate change um, will be beneficial for biodiversity.
0: Well, yes, speaking back to the whole foods and high-end shops that cater to people who are ostensibly climate change conscious is the emergence of replacements within the vegan market, for instance. The replacement for butter is this palm oil spread. I investigated that a few years ago because, as you probably are aware, the, the palm trees that have been planted all over Malaysia and Borneo specifically have destroyed vast tracts of the jungle there. All this, it's the paradox, Tim, that people are saying they want to help climate change but end up getting on board with a new marketing device such as palm oil spread so you don't have to have cow milk in your diet. But instead, this has contributed to the wholesale destruction of jungles throughout Malaysia. So it's it's almost a paradox that the very industries that claim to be fighting climate change are in fact contributing to them
1: yes so you know there are there are some complexities um definitely and and you know it is it's worth being aware that that climate change isn't the only contributor of biodiversity loss um and you know palm oil certainly is a is a major pressure on tropical ecosystems um and you know so thinking about products that have palm oil in looking for the the Roundtable round table on Sustainable Palm Oil logo on, on foods, you know, is, is, is a good way to, um, to be thinking about impacts of habitat loss.
0: And where does your research take you in the future now? You're working with modelling and looking at predictable measures for environmental and biodiversity changes. What do you see on the horizon in your field
1: yeah so you know we're interested in a few things what one is this perfect storm that i talked about of of habitat loss and climate change you know that is still that this sort of complex these these complex effects of of, of both habitat loss and climate change are, are still something that we don't capture very well within our models and our forecasts for what might happen to biodiversity um we're also interested in the impacts of international trade. So, we, you know, we've talked a few times about um, supply chains um, and what that means for biodiversity. So, you know, we're really interested in sort of tracing the um, the impacts on biodiversity through trade in, in commodities, looking at the impacts.
0: And what has your research shown thus far on this impact?
1: So we're still, you know, we're still, this is something that we're still working on. Um, But, you know, one one thing that's already emerging is that, you know, um, the impacts of trade on climate aren't necessarily the same as impacts of trade on biodiversity, which we think is a really interesting finding. You know, because there's lots of talk, as as you say, about replacing products in order to reduce their impacts on climate, that may not always be the best thing for biodiversity, um, but that's something that we're still working on. I should say that, and, and the third thing that we're really interested in um, is this, you know, understanding which animals and plants we're losing and what that means for us. So we've got a lot of work looking at pollinators um, and how they are being affected by habitat loss and climate change to try and understand, you know, what biodiversity changes might mean for us through, you know, pollination of crops, for example.
0: And the importance of pollination, for instance, we discussed bees earlier, what are some of the other animals that contribute to pollination? And in the evidence, the stark evidence that there are real threats to current pollination vehicles, let's call it, What is an alternative to this? Because it's not like everyone can run up and just throw wildflower seeds everywhere and hope that takes care of it. The situation's much more stark than simply lack of wildflowers in Britain.
1: Yes, definitely. So, yeah, all sorts of things contribute to pollination. Bees, of course, that that many people know about. Wasps do as well. Um, uh, Butterflies and moths, flies, and also um, mammals and birds. so, you know, for example, agave, which is one of the key ingredients of, of tequila, is pollinated by a bat. Um, and, you know, what our research is, is showing is that um, pollinators do very badly with very intensive farming, and particularly in tropical areas. So this is, we've got some work coming out within the next two or three weeks um, that, that shows that intensive farming in the tropics has a very negative impact on pollinators. And as I said before, you know, often we're taking what we see in Europe and North America and using that to to understand what might happen elsewhere. But, you know, this is showing that the impacts on pollinators may be even more acute in, in tropical regions than has been suggested by research in Europe and North America.
0: And have you done any work And one of the most fascinating biodiverse sites in the UK for me are the hedgerows? I'm a bit obsessed with hedgerows because, as you know, they have a long history in farming, but many of the hedgerows in England are very old. And you'll find within them, I and mean, they look like, at first glance, you, could, you think there's a wall underneath some of them, but they're not. They've just been there for hundreds of years, and they have many species of flora living together, and then many types of animals living in and among them to include bees that often use that as their bee line. Can you speak a bit about how agriculture in and around hedgerows might offer solutions or not?
1: Yeah, so, you know, we, we know that hedgerows are, are one of these sort of features of, of agricultural areas that can be very beneficial. For biodiversity so you know when we talk about intensive farming um, which is particularly detrimental to biodiversity we you know that there, there are a number of features of, of that you know high input of chemicals just growing one type of crop over a large area and you know removal of bits of natural habitat like like hedgerows um, and so you know conversely having having these, having things like hedgerows or patches of natural habitat or natural trees within an agricultural system um, can have a very positive effect on, on biodiversity.
0: One thing I noticed also while doing farming in Cornwall were the abundance of communities where people were trying to get back to more natural farming and the debate even amongst the permaculturalists was, let's look again at the situation of using pesticides, which ones might be less toxic to the environment, more natural, because the argument amongst some were simply, some pesticides come from naturally found chemicals. Okay, so that's one argument. And the other was, it's more important to buy locally and not worry about pesticides as much. We're focusing on the wrong issue. We need to work on not buying fruit that comes from South Africa, and buy fruit that comes within a certain radius of where we live?
1: Yeah, I mean, I guess the challenge is that, you know, we we have to find solutions that will scale up, you know, the the size of the problem is is so immense, you know, we've, we've got a population that, that may reach 10 billion by the middle of the, the century. And we, you know, we've got to find solutions to agriculture that will scale up and will allow us to to feed human populations. Um, and, you know, I think, you know, we can learn a lot from, from some of these things, you know, from being more precise about the way that we use chemicals, using things that are less detrimental to biodiversity, um, you know, incorporating bits of natural habitat. Um, but, you know, ultimately to, to um, stop losses of biodiversity, we we've, we've got to find solutions that, that can, that can be used across the, the
0: Can you just tell us a bit about how the Convention on Biodiversity might be useful going forward or might there be need for other kinds of bodies that offer more proactive solutions that might not have to wait another decade or two to put into gear actions that move us towards embracing the changes and the challenges of biodiversity today?
1: I mean, yeah, the Convention on Biological Diversity, play, you know, plays an essential role um, and, and, you know, critically in getting go- governments to agree on targets for biodiversity loss. So, you know, currently the negotiations are underway to agree the next set of targets um the, the post 2020 targets um, and and. But but you know ultimately, it's governments that that have to take action. You know, similar to as with with climate change, you know, these agreements can be reached, and then you know countries have to to set their own targets and to put in place the actions um, that that are needed. And of course, also there's a role for private companies, as, as we've discussed. You know, in in reducing biodiversity impacts of their supply chains. And also um, us as individuals, both as consumers and, and in the way that we manage our own green spaces, our gardens and so forth.
0: The living wall, when you mentioned that earlier, I thought of this living wall in the middle of Madrid, which is more aesthetic than it is pragmatic. There's no garden for food growing on that wall. But I'm wondering if viable solutions, obviously in cities, most people are living in flats, But if there are viable solutions for people living even in smaller towns where they might have a little backyard to use, obviously not everyone wants to go to farming. I mean, a lot of people think, you know, we're moving forward, we shouldn't be having to farm, we've got a full-time job. But it seems that with the population heading towards an explosion in future years that we need to start addressing how we as individuals can make a dent. For instance, I live in a flat. I grew some watercress recently. We had it last night for dinner. Are there ways that you have seen communities work positively in addressing en masse the biodiversity issue through just how they affect climate change? Because obviously, by affecting climate change, you can often help the biodiversity. Obviously, I'm not thinking everyone will Make a big dent by growing watercress on their windowsill, but what are some of the positive examples you've seen out there that we might ought to emulate?
1: Yeah, I mean, yeah, you know, individual actions are small, but of you know, but of course, collectively they add up. Um, and you know, I, I I think as I as I said, you know, key things really would be, you know actions that reduce our carbon footprints and and ultimately reduce climate change. Um, And and, you know, just thinking about what we grow in our gardens because, um, you know, particularly for insects, having flowers rather than um, concrete is is much better for for insects. Um, And yes, as um, you know, consumer choices as well are are very important. Um, you know the more the more that we can make responsible choices when we buy food and other products you know again individually it's small but but collectively it can add up to having a big effect